Hypothetically speaking, let's say I was out of shape. I mean, this is purely just, just hypothesizing. Let's say I was out of shape and I set a goal for myself that I wanted to run a marathon, 26.2 miles. And I woke up the next morning and I tried to run as far as I could. And maybe I made it like six miles before I fell over and started oozing lung fluid all over the side of the road or something, hypothetically speaking. Um, most people know uh, that is not the right way to train for a marathon. There's a right way and there's definitely a wrong way. I'm not a, I'm not a distance runner. I'm, I'm more built like a, a sprinter, uh, like the dwarf in Lord of the Rings. I'm just wasted over long distances. But we have some runners in our church, quite a few runners. And a couple of years ago, I was asking Tom about how to train for a marathon. Hypothetically speaking, I wasn't really going to do it. And I was blown away. I'm sure there's lots of, lots of um, theories out there on how to do this, but I was blown away by him suggesting if you wanted to start running long distances, start with a walk, maybe around your block, if you don't, if you don't have a, a really long block to walk around, if it's short, and then try to walk two times around. And in his method, you didn't really run until like the next week, and then you only ran a short distance. Like it was slow and steady, and it sounded a lot more sustainable than, than my impulse, which would be to just see how far you could go. And it really explained a lot about my fitness journey. But I've been chewing on this metaphor of running a, a marathon as uh, uh, an image of what we're trying to do at solid ground and run, run together. There's the, a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And stick with me here. I'm going to try to connect the dots a little bit because uh, I, I believe the, the journey of following Jesus is it's a race. It's not just about the end goal, but even like how we run the race and who we run the race with is a big part of the point. And I was thinking when someone signs up for the race, when they, whatever language you want to use, when they come to Jesus, when they accept Jesus into their heart, when they give Jesus control of their lives, my impulse has been, great, let me give you a book study. Let's read the book of Romans together. Or let's start on, on the book of John together. Or pray, let me pray for you. And you've got these issues in your life. Maybe it was a crisis that brought you to Jesus. I'm going to pray for you really hard. Uh, or, uh, or just uh, someone comes with a problem, and not intentionally, but I'm just going to guilt you into trying harder. You can be better. I haven't done a lot of that stuff on purpose, but I'm thinking, like, when, you, when someone sets a goal to run a marathon, you don't give them a book study on marathons, on uh, the proper running technique, or, and, and start with that before they ever actually lace up their shoes and hit the pavement. Um, if if uh, I was trying to train for a marathon, you said, this is great. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will empower you and, and then will set you free to run 26.2 miles. Like, well, I would be really grateful for the prayers, but I don't think my knees and my muscles would would adjust that quickly. Or maybe if I I, I just signed up for this goal and and you were kind enough to come and cheer me on, no matter how hard and how loud you yelled, run faster, run longer, it's not the best way to train. So I've been giving a lot of thought to what do we do here at Solid Ground Church? Who are we 
Uh, how do we go about doing what we're doing? And I've tried to, uh, I've had some conversations lately about uh, what's solid ground like and, and where are you going? And I keep finding myself saying, well, we're not this kind of church and we're not that kind of church. And some of that's helpful. But over the past couple really weeks, I've gone back to the beginning asking, who is Jesus? What was Jesus about? And I want to start there with you. Today, I want to t- tell you a couple stories about Jesus and then extrapolate, get some, some implications for us as Solid Ground Church and for us here in the 20, 21st century uh, Southern California. So let's start with the basics. Who is Jesus? If you've grown up around the church, you've known him as the Messiah, the Christ, meaning the long-awaited king of the world. But in the first century, if you're sitting in a synagogue in first century Israel and Jesus walked in, you would have known him as a rabbi. It's the, the word for teacher. And rabbis in the first century would, would travel around. They're highly respected in most of the villages around Israel. And, and they would share their understanding of the first five books of the Old Testament. And they would share their yoke is, is how people would refer, refer to, their, um, to their teaching. And in the New Testament, there's 90 or so times when people approach Jesus. And 60 of those times, they addressed him as rabbi or teacher. And this one fact holds so much meaning for us and implications for us today. Because uh, this whole rabbinical system is the method Jesus used uh, and and what we have recorded in Scripture. And um, if you watch, if you're with us regularly, you hear me say the word Jesus follower a lot. And uh, Jesus is my rabbi. Jesus is the one I follow. But I want to be careful that this phrase doesn't become a cliche. Because a Jesus follower could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Oh, I follow Jesus too on Instagram. I like all of his photos. Oh, yeah, I follow along a little bit. And I'm, I'm a big fan. But, like, this means so much, di- so much, uh, so- something so much more meaningful in the first century context, and we can't rip it out of the first century context without unpacking it a little bit. So let's open our Bibles, or or if you're following along, we'll put the scriptures on screen to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with hired men and followed him. Then one chapter over in Mark chapter 2. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. What does he say? Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Then a few verses down. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed the twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boangers, 
Yes, I did look that up on Google on how to pronounce, and it means the sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So he's called all of these disciples and used this specific language, come follow me. And then later on in chapter eight, Jesus says something interesting about his Jesus followers, about, about his own followers. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Did you see the pattern here? So Jesus found these folks and he invited them to follow him. Come follow me. Nowhere in, in any of the times we have recorded in scripture did Jesus say, hey, believe in me and you'll go to heaven when you die. Which is absolutely true, by the way. But the call of Jesus was to come and follow me or to come and be my disciple. Now, disciple, there's a Hebrew word called Talmudim. Everybody say it together, Talmudim. Oh, that was really good. So you've learned a little bit of Hebrew today. And this word disciple is clunky in English because we don't have a good English equivalent. It means follower or student, but the closest approximation we have is the word apprentice. This is what a disciple means. You are, you are apprenticed to your teacher or to your rabbi. And Jesus is inviting lots of, we're gonna see later, surprisingly inviting these random, seemingly random folks, outsiders, fishermen, tax collectors, uh, zealots to come follow, come follow him. And a little bit of backstory here, Jesus wasn't the first one to come up with this idea. Why? Jesus came up with everything. But Jesus didn't invent this idea in the first century. There was a rabbi that lived before Jesus who had 70 disciples, very famous, Hillel, Akiva, who lived after Jesus, had five disciples, but was had thousands and thousands of followers. There were even disciples in Greece. Uh, Plato was a disciple of Socrates, and that was hundreds of years before Jesus was born. So this idea wasn't brand new, but it's important for us. And thank you so much. Uh, just a little nerd alert. I know not all of you love just watching the History Channel, but this is important background for where we're going. We can't tear this idea of discipleship out of, out of its context. So uh, normally, a rabbi uh, following this structure uh, would, would uh, select students who had come out of the, the discipleship tiers in, in first century Juda Judaism. So the first level that everybody entered was the Beit Sefer, it means the house of the book. And in that, in that primary school, you would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Maybe you started reading the Bible in January and, and you're making your way through the first five books of the Bible. They had it memorized, uh, but before you beat yourself up, it was an oral culture and there was no Netflix. So uh, in this, you would learn, you would memorize Torah and you would learn uh, how to read, uh, some writing and some mathematics all taught from the Bible. But by the time you were 13 or 14, most people were done here. Uh, girls were, were got married and started having families and boys were apprenticed to their father, fathers at this point. 
school is over. But for those that had the, the academic chops or the potential to continue, they would go to the House of Learning or Beit Talmud. And this was for you know the cream of the crop. And there they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. And most people, I don't have the percentage, like 95% of the people would be done there. Just, you know, memorizing the Old Testament. But then there was this third level, the disciples, the Talmudim. This is like the special forces of education. Like these people could only be Talmudim if they were grilled on everything, Old Testament and all the commentaries. And, and if they had what it takes they would be invited by the rabbi to say, hey, come follow me. And that was like, like, like Berkeley, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, like so hard to get in, so hard just to get an invitation to. And once you were a disciple, you had three goal, three goals. The first goal was to be with your rabbi. You were with them, you traveled with them, you were seven days a week, you were around them trying to absorb who they were. Not just what they know, but you were trying to emulate. Like they would, they would even impersonate the tone of voice and the gestures. You were trying to be with your rabbi as a disciple. And the second goal was to be like your rabbi. So to be with, the outcome is that you become like your rabbi. There's this old uh, Hebrew blessing that says, oh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which happened because there were very few paved roads and it was considered a blessing to follow this amazing teacher so closely that you literally got covered in their dust. Uh, and uh, Jesus uh, invited a couple fishermen, said, hey, come follow me. And, he, and he, he wasn't just being cute when he said, I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Like that was a common phrase back then. And it meant that these rabbis were, were so good at capturing the minds and hearts and imaginations of people that they were like fishers of people. And uh, even though Jesus was incredibly clever, like he was using a common phrase for fishermen. And that was the outcome of being with your rabbi and, and being like your rabbi. You're going, to, you're going to actually fish for people like me. And that brings us to the third goal. Like, you're going to do what your rabbi did. Hey, you've, you've been with me. You've become like me. And now, as a disciple, you're up to bat. Yes, I did use a baseball reference. Uh, for eight of you that care, that's a really big deal. But you're, you, now, it's, now it's your turn, kid. Go and do what I did. And in, in scripture, we clearly see Jesus sending people out to do what he did. So your hope was that someday, like you would be a rabbi too. And this was a highly respected thing. So be with your rabbi, be like your rabbi, and then do what your rabbi did. So what does this mean for us in the year 2023? So it means a lot for how we follow Jesus. It's, it's much deeper than just being a fan of Jesus. Like we are followers of Jesus. So our first goal, if we've said yes to Jesus, is to be with Jesus. And I can't overstate how important being with Jesus is. It's our first and primary goal as Jesus followers. I believe this is the first and primary goal of us as human beings. Like when we are not with Jesus, we're straying away from our original intended purpose. 
If, you, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to this whole thing, this is where you start, to be with Jesus. Back then they would spend every minute with a rabbi and, uh, and now, like what I mean, like Mike, how do I be with Jesus? Like if Jesus shows up in my room, I'm probably gonna freak out. But we have the Holy Spirit. Like our goal is to spend every minute to, to be in a constant state of an awareness of Jesus and a connection to the Spirit. And it doesn't mean that we somehow are all like holier than thou and, oh, I can't be bothered with that. I'm, I'm being connected with the Spirit. It means there's no separation between our, our spiritual life and regular life. Like everything, our mind is constantly going back to, uh, back to, back to God, like shifting. Oh, there you are, God. There's this book called Practicing the Presence of God where this uh, monk in France, like he even turned doing the dishes into a prayer. And he, was, he wasn't like this great teacher, but he just, he was with Jesus and people started recognizing it and asking him for advice. And I think his life typified and exemplified Jesus' words in John 15, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And he goes on to say, this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. He's talking about this. He's, Again, the word disciples come, comes up. It's not just, I've read the books and I believe everything in here. It's not just, okay, I got a prayer and I've been bit by a, a spiritually radioactive spider and now I can leap sin and temptation in, in a single bound. The word of disciple is you're with Jesus and, and because you've been with him, like it changes you from the inside out. One of the my favorite and most influential voices in my head about discipleship is this guy named Dallas Willard. And listen to this quote of his. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habit of dwelling on things less than God. But these are habits, not the law of gravity. They can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps towards keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. So living, what does this look like? Living in this constant state of awareness, it's going to take practice. And there are things, great things, that I think have a bad reputation uh, in, in, in the, the following of Jesus. Things like silence, Sabbath, solitude. These are helpful things. Uh, scripture reading. Like these are, these are just some of the ways that we are with Jesus. The best part of following Jesus is Jesus. <laughs> Rocket science, like this is the goal. If, if, 
if you are here and this is like the, the place that you are, you will get to step two as you constantly turn your heart, your affections, and your mind towards Jesus. You are going to be like whoever you are around. And that's the second goal is to become like Jesus. The old school term for this is sanctification, brothers and sisters. I've been sanctified. This is a traditional term. Today, uh, we talk about the term spiritual formation. And here's a definition that I came across that I liked. Spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is the process of increasingly being possessed and per permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. That, that being said, we are all disciples of something. We're all being shaped by something. Being with Jesus means that we're intentionally letting Jesus shape our thoughts, the things that we want, the things that we say, and the things that we do, even our relationships. So who are you being formed into? Who are you around? What voices are in your head? Who, who are the most influential voices that you're listening to? Who or what are you becoming? What's the trajectory of your heart? If you were to think about the, the choices that you're making, the things that you're, you're allowing into your mind and heart, how is that going to shape you into the person you're going to be 10 years from now, uh, 20 years from now? Is the trajectory of your heart leading towards the, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7? It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Are you being shaped into the kind of person that's going to love your enemies or to take, take God at his word and trust God instead of getting pulled into that cycle of worry and grief or, and anxiety? Are we after transformation? Like this stuff takes practice and it's great to learn about it. It's great to, it's great to, um, to cheer each other on and, and to pray that God will change our hearts, but this is the kind of stuff that, that takes practice. No one can do it perfectly, especially the loving your enemies part, especially trusting God. I mean, it's a, it's a high bar. Jesus says, do not worry. How's that going for you? <laughs> it takes practice. And so to review, we're with Jesus, we become like Jesus, and the third goal is to do what he did. This is the whole end goal, is to carry on what your teacher did. And Jesus's work was to usher in the kingdom of God. It's not just to know more Bible-y things, it's to actually participate with God in the renewal of all things. And I, I put together a very informal list of, of what Jesus did. He preached the gospel, he taught the way, he healed the sick, casted out demons, he ate and drank with people who were far from God, he stood up for justice, he made peace, he prayed, he prophesied, and he stood up to religious corruption. And someday, we can do all of this. Yes, you, because we're apprenticed to Jesus as we stick with him and follow him and put into practice what he said. I have a, a friend, he was in my youth group as a teenager, now he's a grown man, Joe. And for years, he was apprenticed as an electrician. And he had on-the-job training. Yes, he learned from books and he learned the theories, but he was with people that taught him how to be an electrician. And the goal wasn't just to know a lot about currents and ohms and watts and, and all of those things. 
the goal was for him to be able to wire a house or to wire all kinds of electronic stuff. Our goal is to have the capacity to join in with Jesus in his kingdom work. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And this kind of path, I think that's our path as Jesus followers. That's, that's a lifetime long journey that you can't do, just like you can't wake up and run a marathon. You can't wake up and, and, and do what Jesus did. And this path doesn't work as a hobby. You know, following Jesus only makes sense if it's the whole point of your life. We can't just go to, go to church on Sunday and like, okay, I've checked that box. Like this thing reorients your whole life. And it doesn't mean you have to quit your job and, and start seminary or Bible school. Like it doesn't work like that either. Whatever you do, you follow Jesus as a, as a, as a uh, barista, as a banker or whatever it is. But it changes the way you're a banker or it changes the way that you're a barista. Like this is the kind of life Jesus is inviting us to. You and me. Today, in 2023, Jesus is saying, come follow me. And in Mark, he's like, take up your cross and follow me. It's an invitation to become a disciple, not just a social media follower. Uh, it's an invitation to do something that I find, like I, I totally get the word Christian, but I was looking through, the word only appears in the New Testament three times. And it's never in a positive light. I, I like that Jesus followers like took the term, it was supposed to be a an insult, but they're like, oh, we'll wear that as a badge of honor. But if you look through the scriptures, the word disciple is mentioned 268 times. And the next most common description of us is the family, like brothers and sisters in Christ. So what's the difference between being a Christian and a disciple? Well, I think it means like that we're following Jesus. And it's not the way most people use the word Christian. It's a way to differentiate yourself. Like you're not a Muslim, you're not Buddhist, you're not a Scientologist. But the way I'm using Jesus follower is like, hey, this isn't something that we just go to church once or twice a year. Like this is a big deal to us. And the way we do everything, work, the way we treat our family, the way uh, everything that we take in is filtered through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is at the center of our life. And just being a fan, and I say this with all the kindness in my heart, there's no stank on this, just being a casual fan of Jesus is an alien idea to Jesus and the rest of the writers of the New Testament. And in, in the book of Mark and in lots of other places in, in the New Testament, there's a literary device that they use. And if, if you look for it, it's easy to find. When it describes who was around Jesus, there were the disciples and the crowd. And the thought behind this is to, to make the reader ask themselves, which group am I in? Are you a Christian? Are you a disciple? Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you just confused and somehow you wound up here because the YouTube algorithm <laughs> brought you here? And I'm glad you're here if that's you. And um, you are so welcome to join in this conversation. But let's ask ourselves that. Are we in the crowd? Or are we really following Jesus? I'm sorry to do another Dallas Willard quote, but uh, this is one of the giants of Christian thought and what it means to be a disciple. And he wrote this. 
The greatest issue facing the world today with all its heartbreaking needs is whether or not those identifying as Christians will become disciples. I mean, there's a lot of heartbreaking stuff in our world right now. I don't have to convince you of that. But in his mind was that the greatest issue is, is this, this casual following of Jesus. Like we're in, and it's not, the, it's not like, mm, those people just don't get it. You know, they, they, they're not in the in crowd. The heartbreak here that I read into this is there's so many people that are so close. They're so close to this beautiful life of following Jesus that yes, it includes hardship and it includes heartbreak and a lot of, of surrender of our will, but they're missing out on the fullness of the kingdom of God and on the fruit that comes from that. And we're invited, we're all, and don't miss that part, we're all invited into this life. You know, Jesus asking tax collectors and zealots and, and fishermen to follow him was the equivalent of some really popular professor. Like, hey, there's a full ride at Harvard. Everybody's invited, just direct message me. <laughs> Tuition paid, just come and learn from me. That doesn't happen and it didn't happen back then. And we're invited into the idea of practicing what Jesus taught. As I read back through the Sermon on the Mount, and I, if you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read Matthews chapter five, six, and seven. Jesus assumes that life is messy. He assumes that we're gonna sin. He assumes that we're gonna have conflict with others. Jesus assumes that we'll have enemies that threaten to drag us out and take us to court. Jesus assumes that we'll be walking down the street and be tempted to lust after a man or a woman. Like there's, it's, it's a messy thing, but you got to admit when you read through it, he still sets the bar really high. Uh, like I mentioned before, my favorite is do not worry. <laughs> it's hard to do. But if you pay close attention, at the beginning in Matthew 5, I won't read the scripture, but he, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 19, he says, put these things, whoever puts these things into practice. And at the end of the sermon, he tells the story about a wise man who built his house on the rock. And he compares that to someone who puts these words into practice. The idea is we gotta try this stuff out. Not just know about God, not just know Jesus' teachings, but to, to practice it. This way of living is going to take a lifetime of practice. And please hear me when I say this. Following Jesus is not about trying really hard. It's not about trying, it's about training. We'd love to train with you. It's a marathon runner. You train over a long period of time and you run farther and farther. But from the runners that I know, most of them like found people to run with. There's very few people who, who trained for a marathon and, and succeeded in running it on their own. And it's so much easier. There's encouragement there. And it takes a long time to do. It doesn't happen overnight. And life, life following Jesus, it's really hard. It's not easy. It's actually impossible to do on your own. But life following Jesus is absolutely beautiful. So today, I want to challenge you to let us know where you are on this path, being with Jesus being like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. If you don't want to put it in the comments, reach out to us. Let us know like, where, you're, where you're at along the way, but also let us know how we can cheer you on 
are you stuck? Is there something you have a question about? And I'd love to know what, what are you sensing is your next step in the invitation to come follow Jesus? Because it's so much easier to do it together and I want us to hear Jesus inviting us to come follow him, but I want us to run together or maybe walk together, or, or, but to take the next steps together. So that's our challenge this week. It's just to be with Jesus. That's gonna look different for a lot of you depending on where you're at in your stage of discipleship. Maybe it's just like taking one minute out of your day to pause and think about, I'm invited to follow Jesus. Maybe for you it's, it's putting on some worship music and cutting out distractions and just being with Jesus. Or maybe it's reading the Sermon on the Mount every day this week, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But this week, take another step of just being with Jesus. Let me pray for you. God, we need your help to do this. Would you please open our ears to your invitation to come follow you? And I pray that for everyone and wherever they're at in their journey with you, that your invitation, that your love, uh, saying that they are worth following you, Lord Jesus, help that to be the loudest voice in all of our heads, no matter when we're watching this. So God, we point our hearts towards you and thank you for your invitation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you. I hope you have a great week. And until we're together again, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine down upon you. And may God be gracious to you. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.